Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. My guest is Sean Doolittle. He's a relief pitcher with the Washington Nationals. He's been an all-star. He's closed games in the playoffs. It's been a great career for a guy who wasn't even supposed to be a pitcher. Sean is also one of the nicest people in the game, the kind of player that you hear about and want to root for, even if he isn't on your team. He's worked with veterans groups. He's spoken out publicly for LGBT rights. He's hosted a Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of Syrian refugees. Recently, he started a campaign to visit and plug an independent bookstore and a book he loves in every city he goes to on the road. ESPN asked if he was the most interesting person in baseball, and the answer to that question might be yes. When we chatted back in 2017, Sean was at spring training with the Oakland A's. I actually invited Sean on the show because I'm an A's fan, Giants fan first, A's fan second, but... I'm an A's fan, and one day I noticed that one of my favorite A's had favorited one of my tweets. So I sent him a DM, and he said, yeah, I love the show. I'll totally come on. Here's a highlight reel we threw together, showing some of Sean's best strikeouts. Do little in to face the left-handed hitting Brad Miller. Fastball, and that was quick work of Brad Miller. Two sliders, a fastball, and that will do it. Now six. Slider and a good one. So... Didn't expect that coming, swinging a miss. But... And he threw it right by him. How about that? Two-two pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck it out. Got it on the inside corner, swinging. And the Angels make some noise in the ninth. But Doolittle finally shuts the door. And boy, what an exciting finish to a terrific ball. Sean Doolittle, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I guess this is a dumb question, but did you always want to be a professional baseball player? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, that's all I wanted to do. Um, I played all sports growing up, Um, started with t-ball and played soccer in the fall, a little bit of football, basketball in the winter. But, um, you know, by the time I got to high school, baseball had become my favorite because it, 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 it came the most natural to me. So this is definitely a, a dream come true to be playing in the major leagues. Did you ever think when you were 17 or 19 years old about how much of your life you had poured into this thing that basically could disappear if you, you know, got in a car accident or rolled over your ankle wrong or yeah. something like that? Yes, definitely. I was I was really aware of that, especially being a pitcher. Um, just the you know inherent volatility of being a pitcher, the the occupational hazards that come with being a pitcher, the risk of arm injury and stuff like that. And that's another reason why it was important for me to go to school. Um, being able to go to a school like the University of Virginia and start working towards my degree. I left after my junior year, so I have three years of college under my belt, and at some point I'll go back and finish. But like you said, to have that safety net in place, to be ha- already have a you know a head start, a big chunk of, of college already under my belt, you know that definitely helps that contingency plan and keep that safety net in place for life after baseball. It's interesting that you say that. You know, I, I interview a lot of you know, artists of various kinds. 
one of the things that some people say is how important it is not to have a contingency plan because if you don't have a contingency plan, you can't quit. <laughs> and and I wonder how you plan for a life without a thing that is so central to your life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that makes it a little bit different than maybe uh, an artist or a musician is that we have a very short window during which we can play this game. You know, there's physical limitations that will only allow you to play the game for so long, um, even if you have a a track record of staying healthy. Um, So we realize that we're going to be former players a lot longer than we are a current player. So I think for a lot of guys, it's important to have that balance to have like a contingency plan in place or to have something set up for life after uh, after you're done playing. Is it something that you think about now? I feel like I do think about it, perhaps more than most guys, uh, because I took such an interesting route um, to get to the big leagues. Um, I was drafted as a hitter, actually, in 2007 by the A's. And, you know, 2009, I'm in AAA. I'm getting close to get to the big leagues. And I start having injury issues. I miss all of 2009 and 2010 with a knee injury. I miss uh, 2011 with a wrist injury. At that point, I didn't play for three full seasons. And um, I was very close to, I don't know actually if I was close to retiring, but I was really thinking about uh, going back to school perhaps and, and continuing to further my education and, and uh, at least give myself options and keep myself mentally occupied um, as I stared down another rehab process. And um, that's ultimately, I I switched to pitching during that summer of 2011 and um, made the big leagues by 2012. And um, I think it gave me a different perspective. And I experienced how quickly this game can be taken away from you. So it, it helps me definitely appreciate everything that I have experienced at the big league level that much more while also being aware of, you know, man, what would I do if uh, if I wasn't playing baseball? It it, it helps me. It, it really changed the way I think. You were a star hitter not only in college but uh, in the minor leagues the first few years of your minor league career. You had been added to the A's 40-man roster, which is the sort of extended roster of the major league team. It, it meant that you... Uh, it, it meant that you were ticketed for the big leagues at some point, or at least the A's thought you were. And that's when you started getting hurt. What, what was the first injury that happened to you? In May of 2009, I was playing right field for our, our AAA affiliate. We were in Las Vegas, and um, I moved to catch a fly ball. I was playing the outfield, and the guy hit a, hit a fly ball. And when I took a step over to you know start to get it, I uh, I partially tore uh, my patella tendon, and that began the um, string of injuries for me. Um, that was a month into the 2009 season, and it took the rest of that year and all of 2010 to finally get it healthy again. Um, it took two different surgeries. I had no idea at the time, but that was kind of the beginning of, of what uh, ultimately led me to pitching and, and to the big leagues. Were you thinking about the consequences when you were walking in and, and you knew that you couldn't you couldn't do much with your with your knee? No, not really. I I, I still 
didn't think it was going to be something um, that ended up being as serious as it was. Um, they they had their team doctor come over and look at it, and he just thought that it was really bad tendonitis. I remember, and uh, we went back to um, that was the the tail end of a road trip, and we ended up going back to Sacramento um, a day after that, and I, I got an MRI and. Even the, even then, I was I wasn't expecting the MRI to show anything uh, serious or or show any red flags. And um, so about a week after the injury happened, when I got the MRI results, I was really surprised that it showed what it did. You know, it started uh, a lengthy rehab process that that took uh, you know the rest of that summer. Uh, we tried to rehab it without surgery. I ended up getting surgery finally in October. You know, I, I had no idea that it was going to become such a difficult injury to come back from. Was that scary for you? Yeah, a little bit. It was more frustrating than anything else, though. I was putting all this time and effort into this rehab process, and we were trying all these new things, uh, these new uh, exercises, or I would I would be able to pass some of the tests, and I would start making some progress, and then I would have a little bit of a setback, and I would... You know, and I, I quickly realized that the most difficult part of a rehab process is the mental side of it. You can get your body to do the uh, exercises that you have to do as part of your rehab program. But, you know, a lot of times, like, you might set goals for yourself. Like, you know, in a knee rehab, I want to be running by this date. And then and then that date comes and goes, and you're not ready to run yet. And it, it, it can drag on you mentally and, and really bring you down because you spend so much time every day getting to the field early and working with the trainers to uh, try to get your body back to playing. You know, meanwhile, you're on the table and, of course, you're happy for your friends that, that they're out there and they're playing and they're continuing to, you know, climb the ladder and you're getting passed by um, some of these guys that, that you know that you can play with, that you feel you feel like you can um, at least compete on the same level as these guys and you're watching them from a training room table, you know, get their shot and, and uh, accomplish what they've been working towards and um, that mental roller coaster can really get to you. By the time you decided to become a pitcher again, you had been in professional baseball for a number of years. You had entered professional baseball as a college player, so you had entered relatively late. And you were almost at the point where you have to decide whether you are going to continue to be a professional baseball player. You know, you you had a pretty small window to figure out if pitching was something that was going to work for you. And I wonder if there was a point when you were throwing long toss or when you first started pitching that it occurred to you, oh, wait, maybe this actually works. It's interesting that you said that because um, the day before I was approached by Keith Lippman, who asked me if I wanted to start throwing, I had called my agent to see what the process would be like if I wanted to go back to school and start taking classes again because mentally the timing of that wrist injury was really tough. I I had been given the green light that – you know, two days from then, I was going to go back to Sacramento to rejoin the team as a first baseman. So I was about to be healthy again, and then I had the wrist injury happen. But throughout the summer, I was surprised at the way that I was able to, you know, throw strikes and repeat some of the mechanic uh, aspects of my delivery. 
in a way the the wrist injury was a blessing in disguise because it gave me the it gave me time it bought me time I knew that I wasn't going to play at all in 2011 so I wasn't rushing for anything um, I knew we had months to to mess around and see if this was going to be something that I could maybe do at some point in my career and you know I can remember from the first time I got on the mound I was able to to consistently throw strikes had had that been the case when five years earlier when you were in college? Yeah. Locating knock on wood was something that, um, was one of my, was one of my strengths. Um, but what came this time around was a, a little bit more velocity, you know, from the time I pitched in college until this point in 2011, I had put on, uh, I had put on a lot of weight. I had grown up. I'd, I had trained for four years as a first baseman. I was trying to hit for power. Um, so I was adding as much muscle, uh, as I could. And, and so I think that helped me repeat my delivery, but it also allowed me to throw a little bit harder. Um, but the weird thing was in the back of my head, um, I don't ever remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be my ticket to the big leagues. This is my golden ticket. I was really at a point where I didn't have any expectations for it. I was just looking for a way to get off the disabled list and get back onto the field. And I think you just kind of wanted to do that thing that you like doing, which is playing baseball. I missed it. I missed it. And I was willing to do anything that I had to, to get back out there. And, you know, I didn't want to look back in, in 15 or 20 years and say, man, like I, I wish I would have tried that, or I wish I would have thrown myself into that a little bit more. And the way that I was able to do it that summer, um, making the switch was, um, we went all in. I had I had help from Ryan and my coach Garvin, and I remember uh, in instructional league in the fall of 2011. Um, at this point, I had thrown one professional inning as a pitcher at the very very end of the 2011 season, and uh, I was throwing 95, 97 miles an hour, and it was it it was really weird because I had never been put on a radar gun up to that point. I I didn't know how hard I was able to throw. I'll continue my conversation with Sean Doolittle in a minute. He'll tell me about the time he finally got to play in the majors and how it almost went entirely 100% wrong. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars in used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Hear the stories behind the songs that rally communities large and small across America. Listen and subscribe to All Songs Considered, Throughline, and All Latino for a closer look at songs from NPR's American Anthem series. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. These are really hard questions. They are really hard questions. I don't have any answers for that. I don't either. Sack of garbage. No. The end of the show will just be five minutes of Biz and Teresa crying and screaming until the outro is played. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, 
on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Sean Doolittle. He's a pitcher for the Washington Nationals. It must have been strange when you finally walked into a major league stadium and, you know, the equipment manager handed you a uniform with your name on the back of it, that it came in such a different way than you must have imagined six years previously or five years previously <laughs> when you started playing pro ball. A little bit. Um, you know, one f- one weird thing about when I got the call to go to the big leagues, I was with our, our AAA team. We were in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and the manager of the AAA team was trying to get in touch with me. He was calling my cell phone, but because it was like it was like nine o'clock in the morning, which for a, a baseball player, a minor leaguer, might it, it might as well have been like four in the morning, um, you know, because after the game, by the time we get home. Um, most, you know, and then we, we finally eat and then we wind down, you know, you're not going to bed until one or two. So my roommate woke up and, and he was hearing my phone go off and he, he woke me up. He said, Hey man, uh, Bushy, our manager, Darren Bush, he said, Bushy's going to call you. Um, you know, you need, he said, you need to answer your phone. And, um, you know, he called me and told me that I was going to Oakland and that, that I needed to get, I needed to get changed and get down to the lobby as soon as I could because they had they had a game that night and they were going to need me for the game and uh, so I go downstairs and by the time I get downstairs it's like nine thirty ten o'clock and uh, you know the the traveling the secretary from the A's calls me and tells me that uh, my flight's not till like three o'clock so I was just like I just went to the airport because I was like I don't want to <laughs> miss my flight you know I and uh, I was uh, I was that excited. Um, Finally getting to the Coliseum in in Oakland, it, it gave me chills because when I was a kid, we had season tickets to the A's. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, and, and we were stationed at Castle Air Force Base in Atwater, California, which is it's now a, a museum. It's no longer uh, a, an active air base, but we had a season ticket package where every weekend we would, we would drive... Uh, an hour, hour and a half to A's games. And that was my first experience with baseball. And um, that's when I first started to fall in love with the game. And I mean, I was three, four and five years old, but um, so I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember it. And I have all these pictures of me and my brother in decked out in A's gear at the Coliseum. And, uh, you know, here I was 20, 20 years later, um, you know, getting a chance to put that uniform on and, and go play on that field. And it, uh, it gives me goosebumps still thinking about it. Um, you know, the, the Coliseum, it might not be the, uh, the nicest, most state-of-the-art venue in the major leagues, but every day that I go out there, I can see where we used to sit. So it, it has a lot of sentimental value to me. So the, the first time that we pulled up, it was a really, really powerful experience. Do you take a cab? to the stadium or someone pick you up? <laughs> yeah, I, t- I took a cab. <laughs> you know, it was really funny because I, I got my bags from the from the airport and I, I go out to the taxi stand and, you know, I, I, I politely tell them, you know, I'm in a rush. I got to get to the Coliseum. At, at this point, it was like six o'clock or so. We have a seven o'clock game. And he, he was like, I, I got to go to the Coliseum. And so he's like, okay. And he goes, what entrance do you want me to use? I have no, I have no idea like what entrance we're supposed to use. <laughs> Um, you know, I haven't been there since I was like four and, and, uh, 
you know, we get to the gate and, and I'm like, tell the guy I'm a player. And the security guard's like, okay, like, do you have ID? Like, do you have, cause we do have, we have ID cards. Um, but you know, I hadn't been there yet, so I didn't have one. So I, I was like, no, like I'm on the team. Like I, I just got called up. I just got here. We were there like blocking traffic. Like people come, we're trying to come into the ball game. And there was this, this cab at this, at the, uh, parking lot, you know, blocking everybody from their tailgates. And, uh, it was me trying to get <laughs> into the, uh, player's parking lot so that I could get into the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine you like pulling your Costco card out of your wallet, your AAA card. I, I, I was like, I've come so far. Like I'm, I'm at the stadium. Just let me in. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy. What was the first time that you pitched in the majors? Um, I didn't pitch until the next night. You know, that night was, um, I got to this, I, I probably got, into the locker room and, and I got changed. I got settled. I, I talked to the manager, uh, before the game and he said, you know, you're here cause, cause we need you. We need help, uh, in the bullpen. We've had some injuries. We've been taxed. The guys have been throwing a lot of innings. So, you know, we know you're, you're rested and, and you're ready to go. Like you, you, you know, you, we know you got here late, but can you still pitch tonight? I said, absolutely. I, I know that they like to get guys feet wet, like immediately, like right when they get called up because they they like to you know throw them right into the fire kind of uh baptism by fire and so i i I was in the bullpen that night and the uh the pitcher that we had going for us jared parker took a no hitter into into the eighth inning and uh we were we were up we had the game in hand we were up uh six or eight nothing at that point and uh I was so scared because i thought that my major league debut might have to be like in an effort for a combined no hitter because uh, his his pitch count was getting very high it was it was up over 100 pitches into in the seventh and eighth innings and and uh, you know normally around 100 they start thinking about taking the guy out and and so i was sitting there and i'm like the game's in hand like i'm gonna ha- they're gonna ask me to be a part of a combined no hitter for in my debut uh, we were playing the Texas Rangers at the time who who had one of the best offenses in, in the league and uh, I was a wreck and uh, I did not pitch that night uh, I ended up I ended up pitching uh, an inning in the third the next night and uh, I was I struck out my my the first hitter I faced and uh, had that that closed out that was the third out of the inning and then I, I, I pitched the next inning as well and it was uh, it was very surreal. It was something that I actually had to go back and, and watch on film because I didn't remember a lot of it. You know, one of the things that you did that I was really touched by, a couple of years ago there was some controversy around an LGBT night at the Coliseum. And you and your then-girlfriend, now fiancé, bought out the unsold tickets to the game in the LGBT night themed sections of the ballpark and gave them to uh, community groups, uh, LGBT community groups in the Bay Area. And I think when I read that story, the thing that struck me the most was not, I mean, it was a really lovely uh, gesture, of course, and it was a really lovely gesture in the the face of um, some real weird, gross stuff that was going on around that. That controversy was, was really lousy. But the thing that occurred to me was you know, I've been a sports fan my entire life. I'm from 
San Francisco and grew up in the Bay Area. And I couldn't think of another time that a professional athlete affirmatively (laughs) said something positive about the LGBT community. Like, it occurred to me that my standard of acceptance of LGBT people for athletes was basically not being a bigot. And that really astonished me, you know? It was just something that I hadn't thought about until you did that. And it, it was such a remarkable thing for being such an unremarkable thing. I mean, it's it's not like it was 1983, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it, you know what? It It seemed... Like it was long overdue, like that, because that was the first time that the A's had announced that they were going to host a Pride Night, and uh, other teams had been doing it for years. I think uh, at that point, the the Giants might have had uh, might have been doing it uh, for f- thirteen or fifteen years, and it was exciting that the A's were uh, that the A's were going to do that, and um, you know, some of the initial reaction that we saw on on social media was was not great and and we just wanted to you know kind of turn a negative into a positive and, and create a space where people felt comfortable and people felt welcome and um it, it just none of it sounded sounded right to us um the fact that there were people who were actively like a, against that uh idea of having a, a pride night and and we wanted to show our support and 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 try to make it you know the night that it was supposed to be where we were we're celebrating uh the lgbt community and and welcoming them and, and using baseball as a using sports so many times sports can be like that common thread that common ground that people can find to come together uh, over certain issues, um, it can be a very powerful vessel for change. And what was really, what really struck us though, was the response that we got from the A's uh, fans and, and the A's community. We said, if you don't want to come, that's okay. We'll buy your tickets, and then we'll donate your tickets to maybe a group or, or some people that that really want to come. By the end of it, Aaron, my fiance, had set up a GoFundMe page, and, and we raised over forty thousand dollars, and we were able to use that to bring out people from different LGBT youth centers uh, in the East Bay and, you know, pay for their transportation and their tickets to the game. And, you know, that night was one of the most fun nights of the year. We scored like 22 runs and and it was a a blowout win and people were dancing in the stands and it was, uh, it it ended up being, uh, it came together and it was really awesome. I was reading an article about it from when it happened. And one of the quotes that struck me was from the director of an LGBT youth center in the East Bay. What he said was, I guess it never would have occurred to me to call and ask for help from a sports team. And it seemed like part of what made it such a vivid gesture was that it was an affirmative indication of welcoming in a situation that hasn't always been a welcoming place. And that hasn't always sort of said out loud, you're welcome here. And that really touched me. I mean, like, you can buy tickets for the boys' club, you know? <laughs> I went to the boys' club in San Francisco. We we got to go to a lot of baseball games for free, <laughs> you know? It was great. But that act of uh, reaching out is kind of an unusual thing. We realized that we had a opportunity to 
be a, a voice in the community. Um, so many times uh, I've, I've, I've said I've been so grateful for the way that the A's fans have embraced me and supported me uh, during my career, during my time with the organization. And um, I think when it comes down to it, you know, athletes have a voice if they ch- if they choose to to use it. They have a built-in platform if if they uh, want to speak out uh, on something. And you know, it was an opportunity that that I saw. You know, that that uh, Aaron and I wanted to welcome these people to the field. We wanted, I think, um, you know, kind of like what you said. Uh, um, the baseball community had never really i don't know if they they did i don't really know how to say it but it it was something like i said we, we felt it was long overdue and we couldn't believe that that uh they hadn't done this yet and when they when they did do it we just wanted to be involved to make sure that that people knew that we supported them and we wanted them to come out and have fun at the stadium and we wanted them to feel welcome and comfortable and be able to feel like uh, we wanted them and and that we were uh, we were willing to help them out with it. Well, Sean, I'm so grateful for you to take for taking time out of spring training to talk to me, and I'm looking forward to watching a lot of games on my MLB.tv, and I'll be rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Sean Doolittle, catch him in Washington D.C. at a Nats game, draft him onto your fantasy team. Watch them on television. I got that MLB.TV. That's really great. Recommend that highly. Or follow him on Twitter at What Would Do Do. D O O D O. Do. Get it? Uh, lately, he has been visiting independent bookstores in every city that he goes to on the road and uh, plugging them on Twitter along with the social causes that he favors. It's pretty great. Great baseball Twitter. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our producer, Ragu, noticed that the great city of Los Angeles laid down a new 20-foot patch of grass, which is nice. Uh, There are some parts of the park that have nice fresh grass and some where there is none grass. So 20 feet of grass, that's progress. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away taking care of a new baby. Ragu Manavalan stepped in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer over here, showing Ragu how to work the mixing board, I think. Uh, we get help sometimes from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. She's killing it on Twitter lately. You can follow her on Twitter at Cinnamon Femme if you make a habit of following the employees of your favorite public radio programs on Twitter. I recommend that one. Our interstitial music is by DJW, our friend Dan Wally. Our thanks to him. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries, as always. And before you go, there are decades of this program available to you to listen to. Interviews with all kinds of amazing people. If you're a baseball fan and you liked our interview with Sean Doolittle, let me recommend our interview with knuckleballer R.A. Dickey, another baseball player who loved playing baseball and also 
loves reading books. That was a totally fascinating interview. You know, he spent his teenage years homeless, squatting in real estate listings. He would look up where there was going to be an open house and then let himself in the back door in the town that he grew up in. Amazing dude. All of those interviews are at MaximumFun.org. The past few years' worth are on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. Uh, we're also on Twitter and Facebook, facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And Twitter, we are at Bullseye. And those are all great places to listen to our program. Or you can just listen in your favorite podcast app. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.